Until the global financial crisis struck, Ireland was held up as a shining example of how to run a successful modern economy. But it has fallen harder than most during the recession and has been forced to seek tens of billions of dollars from the IMF and the EU to keep its economy afloat. Economics correspondent Nigel Sterling lived in Ireland during the height of the Celtic Tiger boom, and before this latest crisis hit, he travelled back for Radio New Zealand's Insight programme to investigate what's gone wrong and what lessons there are for New Zealand. There is no jobs here and there is no bright light for the future. I think the banks were running rings around the regulator for years, and that's why we got to where we are at the moment. No policing, no proper policing, nobody in charge. Lunatics took over the asylum. The credit crunch, the the events of Lehman Brothers, were surprises to the government and shocks to their system that they didn't actually anticipate, and I think they thought that they could manage it down in a sort of an orderly manner, and I'm afraid they just got it wrong. How much will people take? I mean, they've seen their social welfare cut, their wages cut, the number of teachers, number of uh, hospital workers cut, and at the same time, more and more and more money is going to banks. So certainly the elements are there for a social explosion. The Irish economy is once more on its knees. Unemployment is surging, and the spectre of mass immigration again haunts the Emerald Isles. While Ireland has been poor for much of its history, this time it comes after a period at the top of the economic rankings. In 1988, The Economist magazine dubbed it the poorest of the rich European economies. Yet by the middle part of the last decade, it was the richest per head of any European country after Luxembourg. John Fitzgerald, at the Economic and Social Research Institute in Dublin, explains what kick-started this brief prosperity. The way Ireland opened up, it embraced globalisation and said globalisation is good for you, and every political party basically had signed up to that by 1990. It was a can-do attitude with foreign direct investment that bureaucracy was cut to a minimum. So if you wanted to set up a factory, for example, IBM, from the time they decided to open a factory in Ireland to the time that it was actually completed was under two years. That includes all permits, permissions and so on, building, that's in the 1990s. So that was one element. The other was investment in education. Ireland was way behind the curve. But from the 1980s onwards, there was a major investment in education. The availability of an awful lot of skilled young people in Ireland who are prepared to work for, because there was a big supply, wage rates were not very high by German and French standards, and that was attractive for foreign firms. Low corporate tax also played an important role. During the 1980s and 90s, Ireland operated a system of differential taxation with the highest rate set at 50%. But in the late 1990s, the Irish government decided upon a flat company tax rate of 12.5%. Foreign investment, mainly from American pharmaceutical and technology firms, flooded into the country. John Moran is the head of the world's biggest property agent in Ireland, Jones Lang LaSalle. He says the country's fortunes rose on the back of this investment. Initially, it was predicated on inward investment, very, very strong inward investment. Ireland is the second largest producer of software in the world on a volume basis, not just on a per capita basis. 
So here you have Hewlett Packard, Dell, Microsoft, seven out of the top ten computer companies in the world have their European headquarters in Ireland. So huge job growth, massive employment. We got down to a situation where it was full employment, it was as simple as that. Everybody working and then people started making money and making serious money. The Irish spent a large chunk of their new wealth on property. Fueled by cheap credit, house prices rose more than fourfold between 1995 and the peak of the market in 2006. The Irish, sitting on increasing amounts of equity but running out of buying opportunities at home, started to look abroad. And in 2007 were the second largest buyers of commercial buildings in Europe after the British. I was working in London at this time as a property journalist. One conversation with a property agent in London's financial district in early 2008 astounded me. He told me that half of all the money tagged to be spent in the city in the first three months of 2008 was Irish. That was more than the Saudis, the Germans or the British themselves had to spend on buildings worth hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of pounds. How could four million people, the same population as New Zealand's, with no obvious natural advantage of minerals or oil, become so rich? Jones Lang LaSalle's John Moran, who brokered some of the boom year's biggest deals, explains. You could be a, a local farmer owning 100 acres outside a satellite town outside of Dublin. Developer comes in, pays you, in one instance, 100 acre site, changed hands for 312 million. If you're that guy, you've suddenly got 300 million in your back pocket. It makes you obviously very, very wealthy. And that was another creation of wealth was the sale of land. The boom also changed Ireland in other ways. Drugs became a problem for the first time. Ali Bracken is the crime correspondent at the Sunday Tribune newspaper in Dublin. They kind of came to prominence really in the mid-90s. That certainly was when gangland murder started to kind of spiral out of all control. And um, that's also around the time that the economy began to pick up in Ireland and that affected obviously the criminal fraternity, particularly with drugs. There's suddenly a huge market developing for cocaine among all the social classes and that became a hugely profitable drug. Reversing decades of population loss, immigrants as well as expats flocked to Ireland. Many, like Tomek Churchill from Poland, who works on a building site in Dublin, were drawn by high wages. My money per week at Ireland, that is money like uh, one month or maybe two months at Poland. But that's kind of like a 400, 500 euro uh, monthly at Poland. And I have it something like uh, nearly 1,000 euro per weekly up here with my profession. But the Irish economy hit a wall on the 29th of September 2008. The US bank Lehman Brothers had collapsed and markets around the world tumbled. The Irish Stock Exchange, which is heavily weighted towards banks, suffered its biggest one-day fall ever. That evening, under pressure from the banks, the Minister of Finance guaranteed the lenders, the first in the world to do so. Brian Lenihan was grilled about the €400 billion Euro decision to back the banks in the Irish Parliament the next day. Just tell us. What happened on Monday? A very momentous event clearly took place. Who approached whom? I'm sure he can remember. By Monday evening, it was clear to us in the, in the government that the huge battering which the shares had share prices had taken in the Irish banks and the stock exchange reflected a general collapse in market confidence in the whole Irish banking sector.
Within weeks, another €5 billion Euros was needed to recapitalise the banks, now being hit hard by the credit crunch. The property market went into freefall as the easy credit which had fuelled the boom all but dried up. House prices in Ireland have now lost more than 50% from the peak of the market in 2006, and developers, faced with a total collapse in demand for new buildings, are going broke in increasing numbers. The banks, which lent huge sums to developers during the boom, face ruinously high write-offs on these loans. And last year the government was again faced with the collapse of the banking system. Its response has been to buy 80 billion euros of loans from the banks and shift them into a so-called bad bank. The National Asset Management Agency, or NAMA, it's hoped will kick-start the Irish banks into lending again. Mark Fielding is the chief executive of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. He says credit isn't flowing. We're so far down the food chain that I'm afraid that uh, credit has not gone down that, that level, even with the government taking over, as you say, through NAMA, uh, taking over many of these toxic debts and uh, refunding the banks, for want of a better expression. The banks are still shoring up their balance sheet and are not passing on credit. So I would be waiting for another 12 months before the banks actually get out of this difficulty. The government's finances have been blown apart by the crisis. Borrowing tripled between 2007 and 2009 and is expected to double again over the next couple of years. Around one in five euros spent by the Irish government in the next few years will be on servicing these debts. The government has slashed its spending in response. John Fitzgerald from the Economic and Social Research Institute says the Irish economy needs this to make itself competitive again. In previous recessions, Ireland has been able to devalue its currency to boost exports and the economy. But Professor Fitzgerald says this isn't an option now that Ireland is part of the euro. Wage rates are actually falling. The whole public sector is down 15%. Now in the private sector, the falls are not as generalised. Our models suggest that you're going to see a three-year period where wage rates will actually fall in Ireland, where at the same time in the rest of the EU, their euro area, they're rising. I think Ireland will price its way back into the world markets. The equivalent of economic chemotherapy being administered has extracted a painful price from the patient. More than 200 people a day were put out of work last year as the jobless reached 12.5% of the workforce. All right, girls, tomorrow morning when you come in, we'll start normally with our spelling tests, our Friday spelling tests, so that would be English and Irish. Then after that, we'll move straight into the Unit 8 to 14 spelling tests. All right? Yeah. Is everybody prepared for tomorrow? Yeah. 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 Neve Dodrell teaches at Mater Day Primary School in a run-down part of central Dublin. Like many young Irish couples, she and her teacher husband borrowed to the hilt to buy their first home. Teachers' pay has been cut in line with other public sector workers. We're just making ends meet at the moment. Any luxuries that we did have have gone out the window. We've had to tighten our belt. A car will need to go in order to, to hold on to our house to pay the mortgage, yeah. I mean, we're, we're pretty much up to our ears in debt at the moment. My husband is permanent at the moment. However, I'm only temporary, which means my contract is renewed 
every August, September. The bones of it is I'm temporary. I may not have a job in August, September, depending on the numbers of children that are coming to school in September. And also the Minister of Education is talking about further job cuts to to save money. It is estimated that there are as many as 300,000 empty houses in Ireland with no signs of a recovery any time soon. And because it is part of the Eurozone, Ireland no longer has control over its own interest rates. Already rising mortgage rates could increase further before buying demand has a chance to recover, further depressing the market. Were she to lose her job and be forced to sell, Neve Dodrell and her husband worry about the price they would get for their house. They fear they wouldn't have enough to pay back the bank. In the south Dublin suburb of Ranla, equivalent to Partnow or Christchurch's Fendleton, I'm coming up to some shops about five minutes' walk from where I used to flat in 2007 and 2008. I'm passing a Starbucks which had just opened when I left in 2008. Now it's empty with a two-lease sign outside. If I walk a few more steps... On this corner site there was a real estate agent, one of three rivals within about 50 yards of each other. It's closed and there are empty desks in the other two. And if I keep walking past these shops, I'm outside what was a Michelin star restaurant. It's gone too. In the high street... Spending fell by 18% last year, as Irish consumers shut their wallets and shopkeepers slashed prices. Tommy O'Reilly used to employ 20 staff selling floor coverings in South Dublin. The business he built up over 27 years and was his pension plan is slowly being worn away. I'm draining the resources of the company to keep the company running. The reason why I have three staff left are two members of the staff are my family, my sons, so I pay them, I keep them in their jobs because they have mortgages on their homes and things like that, so I want them to be able to stay in employment. It costs me a lot of money to employ them. That's the only reason I keep them employed. At the height of the boom, I turned over €400,000 per month. And now? I'm lucky if I do 40,000. Even the drug dealers are struggling. Paul Reynolds is the crime correspondent at the state broadcaster RTE. Like every business, drug dealers need seed capital. They need money to buy drugs. Say to buy a 50,000 euro worth of drugs in Amsterdam and then sell it in the streets of Dublin for 250,000. To make that profit, they need to invest the 50,000. 50,000 is still a lot of money. Where are they going to get that money? They carry out armed robberies, they carry out kidnappings, and that type of crime has increased. This this is the sort of money that they might have got from the cash flow from their business in the past, which is not there. Exactly. It's not there anymore because the drugs trade has been badly affected by the fact that people don't have as much money to spend on cocaine anymore. The drugs market has been very badly damaged uh, by the Celtic Tiger because a lot of people have lost their jobs, a lot of people who were taking drugs in the past are now in rehab. Violent killings are also being carried out by the gangs five in the first week of this year in Dublin alone. And for the first time since the mid-90s, people are again leaving Ireland. The Economic and Social Research Institute expects 40,000 people to emigrate this year, equivalent to 1% of the population. I spoke to these students at University College Dublin, Ireland's largest university. England would be the big choice, I suppose, at the moment. 
an uncle of mine had to go just he's an engineer for years and he had to go over just because there's nothing over here in that sector I don't think at the moment going out into the work environment at the moment just isn't really a, a goer it's just people going for jobs that are way overqualified and I, don't, I just don't want that to be me to try and work in a sweet shop with a degree it doesn't interest me contemplate perhaps going overseas to get a, a teaching job I would but that would be my last resource to be honest I'd love to stay here but uh, I just don't see there being places. I, I hope not to have to emigrate. Probably England or maybe the States, certainly somewhere spoke English. Are you any more confident about the job prospects over there? I mean, it's, a, I guess, a, a worldwide recession that we're in. I do know that in the States, some of the institutions here are quite respected. And also, having a, an Irish background could be of use in, in maybe in, in schools. Kind of played Australia or New Zealand? We're doing all right down there. <laughs> uh, maybe. I'd be a bit put off maybe by the remoteness of it. I'd be a long way away from my family and so forth. Kieran Allen is a senior lecturer in sociology and union delegate at the university. Ireland, before the boom, was characterised by one sociologist as the European storehouse for immigration. Most Irish people, that was seen as a legacy of colonialism. It was seen as a legacy of the failure uh, of Irish society. Uh, to deal and cope with the problems of its own society. The Celtic Tiger, in many ways, you can see it in terms, I'm not a nationalist myself, but it was seen in terms of national pride. We'd left all that behind. We'd grown up as a nation. The tragedies, of course, were right back to the same, same, same stuff again. So how did Ireland get it so wrong? The Economic and Social Research Institute's John Fitzgerald blames the property boom, which he likens to a cancer on the economy. High construction wages had to be matched by firms elsewhere in the economy to attract workers. This effectively obliterated the Irish export sector's competitiveness. Ireland, like most OECD countries, taxes gains on property, but construction grew unchecked. It accounted directly for 14% of the economy, compared to 5% for developed economies and 5-10% to in New Zealand. Subsidies on mortgage interest payments and tax relief for homes in rural areas and resorts fuelled the boom. Incentives to invest in property in Ireland were worth twice as much as in the United States and Europe. John Fitzgerald blames the country's politicians. The government was also investing very heavily in infrastructure and both in 2003 and 2006 we told them that if they wanted to continue to invest in infrastructure, which was probably a good idea, they needed to tax the hell out of the rest of the building construction sector to make space to release resources for public investment um, and to squeeze private investment in building construction. Otherwise they wouldn't have a problem. So why didn't the country's leaders stop the boom developing into a bubble? Union delegate and sociology lecturer Karen Allen says inaction was a symptom of the ruling Fianna Fáil party's economic strategy. He says it wanted Ireland to be seen as a haven from regulation to attract foreign investment. And the close relationship with the property industry was also a factor. The secretary of the Irish Bankers Federation is a former general secretary of the main political party Fianna Fáil. I mean, it's that close. You find on the board of Anglo-Irish Bank, which is one of the major banks that uh, collapsed, that two personal friends of the uh, present Prime Minister, Brian Cowan, are members of that board. So it's a very close connection. Uh, Fianna Fáil, the main political party, used to have a tent every year at the races in Galway, 
where every single major builder came along, made donations to the party. It was that close. So why do you get what's often called crony capitalism? Now, I don't think crony capitalism is a feature just of Ireland. I think despite all its pretensions, it exists in every capitalist country. But why is it particularly virulent in Ireland? And I, I think the way I would put it is that I think that Irish capitalism started off as a weak base. It couldn't compete simply on markets. It needed the support of the state to get a leg up, to get a bit of support. And from that, there developed very close connections between the state elite and the private sector elite, which intermeshed, particularly in the case of the main political party, uh, Fianna Fáil. That has been the character of Irish capitalism, this very close relationship, whereas more developed capitalisms can afford at least a pretense of keeping more distant and developing more subtle practices of how they interact between the political elite and the economic elite. They don't bother with that in Ireland. They just simply give what we say brown envelopes, give us a little bribe or meet at a Fianna Fáil tent and let's do business that way. It's called a frictionless relationship. Ireland is blighted by a history of backhanders. Tribunals of investigation have been running for years in Ireland to root out corruption. The former Irish Prime Minister, Charles Horhey, was the most high-profile scalp in 2006. Other politicians have been found to have taken bribes, often for planning favours to developers. Mike Soden, until 2004, was chief executive of the country's largest bank, the Bank of Ireland. He blames greed, rather than corruption, for the crisis. He says pressure came on his bank to match its main rival, now government-owned, Anglo-Irish Bank. There was enormous pressure put on by the investor community, not just in Ireland but internationally. The growth of Anglo-Irish Bank in this country was something like compounded over a 10-year period of 38% per annum. They were comparing us with them and they were saying, you're going to have to do something to make things better. We'd sit down at board meetings, at executive meetings, and you'd say, look, what are they doing that we're not doing? And in very simple terms, they were able to make decisions far more quickly than we could in terms of lending money. The people in Anglo, again, it's my judgment, viewed the situation very simply, that they knew their customers very well. When their customers came looking for money, they were able to give a decision whether it was on 10 million, 100 million or 500 million within 48 hours and often in a shorter period. John Moran from property agent Jones Lang LaSalle says banks' credit standards went out the window in pursuit of profits. That's one of the big issues. That was where there was systemic failure in the banks, that they were not actually actively going out and seeking professional valuations on the properties that they were lending against. That might sound extraordinary, but that's what was actually happening. So large quantities of money were being lent without a professional valuation to undertake it. So there, were, there was undoubtedly complete breakdown in the systems in the bank and breakdowns in the risk management in the bank. George Lee is a former RTE economics editor and a former economist at the Irish Central Bank. He says the banking regulators were never going to intervene while so much money was being made. And a flood of cheap money from Europe gave the Celtic tiger the noose it needed to hang itself. When we got into the euro, everything changed because it was one currency, one money market in Europe. And our banks were able to say, 
Well, if we don't lend the money to Irish people and Irish developers, a European bank can do it. You can't stop us importing the money. And so this new model of banking materialised, not where the bank lending was based on deposits in the bank, but where bank lending was based purely on the fact that you can go out there and borrow any amount of billions of euros. Freedom of movement of capital poisoned the system because it was added to human nature and Ireland's propensity for home ownership and this lust for property and property development. It's like if you just put that poison into the system, what do you expect to happen, particularly if you don't police it? The banks will do what banks do. They try and make a profit. They get cheap money, they want to lend it out long. And that's what they did. And what will people do? They'll say, well, I would like that house, but somebody's bidding more than me. But a bank will say, but don't worry, I can get you some more. And so people begin to borrow more money. Now, it was let loose with no controls. The freedom of movement of capital is a problem. It's a problem with the single currency. I think it's very clear the Irish example shows that. And it has, it has been the poison which has resulted in us going way off the scale in terms of banking behaviour and personal borrowing behaviour. Property agent John Moran believes Ireland's history meant it wasn't able to handle wealth when it finally did arrive. There's no history of money in this country. This, this is still a democracy which is less than 100 years old, which people forget. The country's been around for a long time, but we've only been in charge since 1921. If you want to go back to Republic, it's since 1947. So, in essence, there's a lot of learning going on. I don't think we were able to handle it. I don't think the regulation that was necessary to deal with it existed or certainly wasn't followed up. We became a bit like a, a spoiled child with lots of money, and if we could get the opportunity to get some more, we just went out. We got more and more and more. We're now paying the price for it, unfortunately. Professor John Fitzgerald says Ireland's boom and bust is a cautionary tale for others. Managing the property market and not stopping bubbles, um, it applies whether you're in monetary union, whether you're in the EU or whether you're outside it, and that it's very dangerous. A lot of the property, like housing, doesn't produce exports, so that it is a misallocation of resources. And if the incentives are to invest in non-productive investment rather than productive investment, then you have a problem in the modern world. Both Ireland and New Zealand are small countries which borrowed heavily offshore to fund property booms. And both countries have tax systems tilted in favour of property. Both have had their export sectors squeezed by the property and construction sectors during the boom. But financial commentator Brian Gaynor says there are key differences between the two countries' economies. He came to New Zealand from Ireland in the 1970s. They grew their export sector very, very quickly and very dramatically, and therefore when their cost structure increased, it had a much bigger impact upon the economy because exports became such a huge part of the economy. Our export sector, particularly non-agriculture sector, is very small, so that any kind of inflation that occurs in the cities in New Zealand doesn't get passed through to export prices to the same extent as it did in Ireland. Therefore, inflation has had a much worse effect on Irish exports than it has on New Zealand exports. Brian Gaynor says the same property craze evident in Ireland didn't grip bankers here. New Zealand had its bubble in the 1980s, and it's unlikely that New Zealand will repeat that in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Now, I don't discount it mightn't happen in 2030, 2040, but the memories are still very strong here of what happened in the 1980s. Ireland didn't have a boom in the 1980s, and therefore there wasn't that institutional memory. 
the populations of Ireland and New Zealand are almost exactly the same, yet in the last decade, Ireland one year built 91,000 homes and another year 78,000 homes. We, the maximum we've done is 30,000 new homes. So they were building at a rate three times greater than what we've been building homes in New Zealand. So there's a complete oversupply of houses right throughout Ireland, whereas we don't have that situation at all in New Zealand. It would seem that New Zealand has some of the ingredients for an island-type property meltdown, but not all. Missing are rapacious bankers, corrupt politicians, passive banking regulators, and a property market gone completely mad. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Nigel Sterling. Technical production was by Leanne Smith, and it was produced by Sue Ingram.